we just sang very, very uh, sobering words that our hearts are prone to wonder and to leave the God we love. That's almost unimaginable as we actually process the thought. Um, but the reason that that happens a lot of times is we lose our awe of who God is and we, we, we forget that he created all these created things and that he has a purpose in it. And I'm going to read from Isaiah 40 before we sing our last song uh, before the sermon. And Isaiah 40, just consider our God, consider who he actually is and consider the details as I read this. It should be on the screen. Um, you can read along, not out loud, but just read along. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and he gently and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He's speaking of the stars and look up. Who created these? He brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, and not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Lord, as we worship you and we sing of your greatness so that it's heard and known. And as we worship you for who you are and not just what you do, I pray that we would not lose sight of who you are. I pray that we would not fall out of, uh, of awe. I pray that it would never be commonplace, that we get to engage the living God through Christ in worship.
together, unified in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed with your goodness this morning, that we would be overwhelmed with your presence this morning, that we would desire to hold fast um, and true and be true uh, to your will as you have uh, shared it with us. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, first of all, I want to pray for another church uh, that's somewhat nearby in Emory. I want to pray for Believers Baptist Church and uh, Jason Rowland. Lord, I want to pray, first of all, for his worship. I pray that he is enjoying you. I pray that he is wrecked and undone regularly. He is um, overwhelmed by your greatness, surprised by your grace. Lord, I pray, too, that he is laboring with the word and laboring with uh, truth. And um, that as he wrestles with it, that it wins and rebuilds him into uh, a worshiper. I pray, too, that that spills over in his time with his family, uh, with his wife and family, that he is um, leading them in faith and that it spills over into the pulpit and spills over into his study, wherever he may pastor and shepherd and counsel. Lord, I pray that uh, ultimately Jason is a worshiper. I pray that the church... Uh, Believers Baptist is uh, enjoying you. I pray that you will guard them as I pray you would guard us from just doing church and just going through the motions and getting our church on and yet never really engaging you while our hearts are far from you. Lord, I pray that you will arrest us with truth week by week and that we'll wrestle with it and that we'll lose. Lord, I pray that we will never assume the cross and assume a crucified and risen Lord who's very seated at your right hand. I pray that that's never an assumption, but that's always foremost and front and center for life and how we parent and how we, our husband, our wife, or how we worship through singlehood or how we preach or how we work at L3 or how we lawyer or whatever we might do, that that's foremost. Lord, I pray for these next few minutes. I confess in front of this people that I am uh, in a lot of ways really worried and um, almost anguish over the truth that we will need to engage this morning. I know that there are family members here this morning. There are church body members that are going to hear something that's very, very, very difficult and troubling. Lord, I pray that by your grace and mercy that we will walk in what we hear. I pray that our will will be subject to your will. Our ways subject to your ways. I pray that what you say is true will trump what we think is true. And in fact, we'll redefine our view of truth. Lord, I pray too in these next few minutes that you will guard my mouth and guard my emotions and guard my heart from anything other than gentleness and respect. Lord, we turn this time over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks. I don't want us to get bogged down in issues as a church. The potential is there. Last week we uh, engaged a message on abortion. This week we're engaging...
the issue of uh, homosexuality. And next week, unless the Lord takes me a different direction, we're going to consider war. What do we do with war? <clears throat> I don't want us to get bogged down in issues, though. You could end up doing that from week to week and just become a very reactive people that are just dealing with things around us instead of letting God, through the Word, take us on a journey. But something that, I guess, a couple factors came together for me to feel like this is where the Lord was leading us these three weeks. One was two weeks ago, something like that. May have been three weeks ago now. We appointed some new deacons. We were in 1 Timothy. And there in 1 Timothy, we saw the instructions for elders and deacons. And then we saw when they are in place that the church is buttressed as the buttress of the truth and pillared in some way as the pillar of the truth, if that's what the church is, the buttress and pillar of the truth. That reality connected with last week, like, yeah, it makes sense for us to make a clear statement on what God's will is regarding life and when that begins. If that's what we are, the pillar and buttress of the truth, then we need to clearly communicate that. So that encouraged me that it would be worthwhile this morning to engage that again in a different topic, <laughs> to deal with where God stands on glaring issues is a responsibility of the church. Not every issue. Like I said, you can become so bogged down in issues that you lose sight of where the journey that we're on. But this morning, I want to deal with the glaring issue of homosexuality. And I'm going to end the message this morning with kind of bringing this thought to completion, but I'm thinking that it's through these issues and how the people of God respond to these issues that we put the gospel on display. There's a potential sometimes to view an issue like this as an obstacle to the gospel. And the people of God should view it as an opportunity to put the gospel on display. So it just kind of changes our paradigm and it changes the way we approach it. Another dot that was connected that led me to engage this this Sunday and war next Sunday and abortion last week was where we're going in John chapter 15. When we get back to John chapter 15 in a couple weeks, Jesus is telling the disciples that you're going to be hated by the world. He's preparing them for the reality that they're not of this world, so the world will hate them. So as we make clear statements on issues, we need to be okay with the fallout. And we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't take it like a bunch of boneheads, mean-spirited boneheads. I knew people were going to be mean to me, like a bunch of babies. But take it like the people of God that know that when you make a clear, absolute statement on an issue that's a clear and present issue, that you're going to make a lot of people mad because the world doesn't like absolute. So given that... I felt it was important for us to hunker down for a couple of weeks and consider some clear and present issues. So this morning, we're going to consider the issue of homosexuality. Turn to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 is going to be home base for us for most of the morning, really for all of the morning. We'll go to a couple other satellites, but Romans 1 is our primary text. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, in a lot of ways tells the human story. 
if you want to know how we got, how mankind got to be mankind, and how we became crossways with our Creator, Romans 1 is a great reference. That's where we're going to pick up in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Wrath, behind that wrath is holiness, justice. A holy and just God can and should be and is wrathful toward unrighteousness and ungodliness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, mankind, is without excuse. This passage is pointing towards something that we could call general revelation. It's not a made-up term. It's actually a very common name for um, a passage. Psalm 19 kind of explains what that is. Don't turn there. I'll, I'll tell you where I need you to turn. But listen, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. These are passages on general revelation that since the beginning of time that Abraham's family walked around outside before Abraham was called to follow God. Abraham's family likely worshipped the moon because they're looking up at this starlit sky and saying there's something greater than us. There's something bigger than us out there. It's the thing that's led Aborigines and American Indians to worship all this thing and stuff around us. Because all creation points toward something bigger than them. It's called general revelation. Something else that it points to, this passage is points towards a universal understanding of sin and virtue. I haven't studied every tribe and every primitive culture. But as far as I know, from what little I have examined... What's right is right, and what's wrong is wrong, no matter the culture. There are different nuances there, but for the most part, somebody else murders somebody else's kid, that's bad, and that's wrong. Someone else messes around with someone else's wife, that's bad, and that's wrong. Adultery and murder are universally wrong. God has exposed His greatness in a starlit sky in the Grand Canyon in this creation that surrounds us and he's written the law on our hearts so man is legitimately without excuse you can see this when you see some sort of crisis you see a universal response to crisis how many people were praying when the world center trade trade towers fell all kind of people praying if you're ever on a plane where there's some significant turbulence People start praying that you didn't even know. But, I mean, there are lots of Christians on this plane now. How'd that happen? There's a universal response to crisis. In 1992, in December, I went into Somalia with 101 Marines on 18 Zodiac boats. And I trained with these men. And I saw men praying that I didn't know who knew who God was. I mean, for real, having prayer meetings down in the squad base. Man, how did this happen? 
There's a universal response to crisis because God has written his law on man's hearts and he's putting his fingerprints on all creation that surrounds us. And then in verse 21, Although they knew God, humankind knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And this is the first of three exchanges and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. This is the human story. In Romans, we know that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. In Romans chapter 3, we know that no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, that means all. Together, they become worthless. Add up all of humankind. We're all crossways with the living God. Add them up, and together we're worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is the human story, because we all have exchanged the glory of God for mere images. Name the tribe, name the culture, name the family, name the person. This is the human story. And then in verse 24, this is the first of three God giving them up. It says, therefore, because God exchanged, or because people have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, there's the second exchange, the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Mankind, this is the universal story, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, this is the second God giving them up. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchange natural relations with those that are contrary to nature. Their women exchange natural relations, which would be God-designed relations, with those that are contrary to nature, i.e. God's design. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then in verse 28 is the third God giving them up. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God through these exchanges... God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. They were filled with evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the heartbreaking human story. There are three levels of abandonment corresponding to three exchanges. 
Now, I'm calling them levels this morning. I don't know that they're necessarily levels. They could be three ways of restating what God has done in removing his hand off humanity. There are three pictures, three sweeps, we can call them. The first sweep, or the first exchange, is exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And the first God giving them up is giving man up to the lust of of his hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The second exchange is exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And God gives them up to dishonorable passions with women exchange natural relations with those that are contrary, which which God ordained for those that are contrary to nature and men did likewise. And then third, God gave them up to a debased mind. And then there's 21 vices listed there. Three levels of abandonment, three explanations of one movement where God takes his hand off this mankind that he created, and they're corresponding to three levels or explanations of man's exchange. I want to deal with homosexuality, first of all, this morning in context. Homosexuality in this passage in Romans chapter 1 is listed among 21 other vices. I'm going to read those vices again because I want us to connect to them. 21 other vices, they are unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. I go through them again because I want every single one of us to find a home in there. Or at least to own some of this. One of the things I want to do this morning is I want the church to engage homosexuality in context. I want us to see it listed along 21 other vices that any single one of us can find our name on. Likely multiple vices. That's the first place to start. Keep your finger in Romans chapter 1 and turn over to Luke chapter 18. Man, Luke chapter 18 has been a treasure lately. It's funny how often the Lord has brought us to this place. During the elder retreat, we listened to a sermon by John Piper from Luke chapter 18 that was also rich and illuminating. I'm equipping you with something to see homosexuality in context. So listen to this parable from Christ here in Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus is telling this parable for a purpose. So those who think they're righteous, trusting in themselves can hear this story. And they treated others with contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. You know, honestly, that's the way the church typically treats homosexuality. Let's be real honest. Let's be real honest. Lord, I thank you. I'm not like those guys. And just like this guy, we're giving God the glory. 
Notice this Pharisee is saying, God, I'm thanking you that I'm not like other men. You gave this to me. Thank you for that. I'm thanking you I'm not like other men. I'm thanking you that I'm not not an extortioner. You did that in me. You're awesome. I'm thanking you that I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And I'm not like that tax collector. And I'm not like that homosexual over there. Thank you. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If that tax collector had Romans chapter 1, I bet he would see his name on some of those vices. I bet he'd be owning them, saying, man, I've been turned over. Apart from Christ, oh, man, I'm ruined. Man, that's the starting point for, for the people of God, to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the other was saying, thank you, God, for making me this way. Thank you, God, for keeping me from being homosexual. You're awesome. That man left unforgiven. It's a tax collector that left justified. I want us to see homosexuality in context. This parable is good medicine for the Pharisee in all of us. It's good medicine, too, for the Pharisee among us. <laughs> this should level the ground where we see grace reaching really, really low for every single one of us. Grace doesn't reach lower for the homosexual than it does for the one who's disobedient to his parents. You see that? Grace doesn't have to reach lower for the homosexual than it does for the thief. For all are the result of idolatry. I told you this is the human story. This Romans chapter 1, it could be the description of Eden on Monday. I mean Monday after creation week. Some people, that, that, some people, that's when the fall took place. Monday. That could be the description of Eden on Monday. It could be the description of Babel. It could be the description pre-flood. It could be the description post-flood. If you've read the flood account. This could be the description for Sodom. It could be the description for Israel, God's chosen people. It could be the description for the Roman Empire. Or you know what? It could be the description for 10510 Woodland Drive, Greenville, Texas, where the McGraws live. Give me your address. It could be the description for you and your house. Anybody read the vice list of chapter 1 and go, <laughs> unscathed. I'm clean. This should make us love, love Love passages like Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Look at it. I want to show it to you. This should make us love this passage. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that's in the gospel, the righteousness of God. That can be translated contextually. The righteousness that's from God is revealed from faith for faith, 
as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. I'm going to read another passage, and I want to amplify and kind of expose what this passage is saying here. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, listen. Paul says, that I may gain Christ, I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Man, the thing I want the people of God to see before we ever really get into the issue of homosexuality is I want us to see real level ground and I want us to see across the board that there is no Christian that is more righteous than another in some way deserving the gospel. Our righteousness is Christ alone. The tax collector got that. The Pharisee walked away unforgiven, unjustified. The people that walk away justified say, man, my name is all up in Romans chapter 1. I need a righteousness that's from God because I have none on my own. The people of God have a tough time dealing with homosexuality right out of the get-go because we're stuck on that. I'm more deserving than they are. The wheels are shot off the plan from that point. You can't even see it. That's the place we got to deal with right off the bat. We got to see homosexuality in context. And this should humble us and it should level us and it should give us compassion for a fellow sinner, first of all. Compassion for a fellow sinner. Now, while I want you to see homosexuality in context alongside 21 other vices, which many of us, I think all of us can find our names on, somewhere, I want us to see that homosexuality does have a prominent place in this chapter. It does have a prominent place in this story. I told you there's three sweeps there, or three levels. It might be alluded to in the first level, that first level being when they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. God gave them up and listened to the lusts of their hearts to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. That could be homosexuality. It could just be really vile stuff. Homosexuality could be a, a little subset within that. It's unclear in that passage, but it's clear in the second sweep. The second sweep, God gave them up in verse 26 to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations, God-designed relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Homosexuality has a very prominent place in the ugly story of humanity. It gets a lot of airtime. In my Bible, I have Romans chapter 1 almost, no, completely on one page. It takes up a big chunk of the right column. Just talking about homosexuality. Verse 26 and 27, it's a whole paragraph right there. In this story, in this terrible, heartbreaking story of the human problem, it's the showpiece of the consequences of trading the truth about God for a lie. While it's listed along 21 other vices that we can all find our name on, this one is pretty unique. It is the showpiece of the consequences of trading the truth of God 
for a lie. It gets a special spot in the story of God removing His hand from humanity. And it's an illustration, ironically. It's both a consequence and an illustration of idolatry. It's both a consequence of idolatry, trading the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature. And it's also an amazing picture of idolatry. Where I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. I'm going to worship and serve my way, not God's way. It's an illustration of what idolatry looks like. We'll develop this more later. Homosexuality in chapter 1 is a couple of words I'm going to introduce you to that are just like these amazing pictures. It is the archetype and the exemplar of fallenness, depravity, decadence, and godless humanity. It gets lots of airtime. I want us to see the gravity of homosexuality. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Just listen. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's shorthand for the unrighteous will not spend eternity with God in heaven. Let's clarify what that's saying. I want you to get this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And the people of God have to make a very clear statement on what is being said here. One who practices, that's what it said, practices homosexuality will not be in heaven. That's what's that saying. You have to do some really amazing gymnastics to work around that. That's a clear and plain teaching of the passage. It either takes some pretty extravagant gymnastics or it takes putting experience and preference and what you think is right in front of what God says is true. Let's be really honest. This is a crazy difficult topic. We have families in this body who have family members that they love and care about that are living in this sin. This is a very difficult issue. But our Bible says, God says through our Bible, that one who practices homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. We've got to see it along these other 21 vices alongside, but we've got to see it as a prominent place. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It's a sin that leads to death. It's not. Alternative lifestyle is a nice way of kind of giving a different name that's somehow digestible. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It is a sin that results, leads to death. Now, I want to show you why it's sin. It's helpful to know why. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> if you're like me, you're, you kind of, kind of struggle with just because. You know, somebody says something's true and you go, well, why? You say, well, just because. You have a tough time with that. I have a tough time with that. I want to know why. So I'm going to take you to why this is a sin. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. <clears throat> 
It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, what he's about to say is something called the cultural mandate. He blessed them, and he said, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If we want to understand why this is sin, we can start at the very beginning and realize that God made man and woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply. He could say, honestly, really, the way the context is and what the cultural mandate means, he could have said, be fruitful by multiplying. That's what this is talking about. Being fruitful means Adam and Eve, go have a bunch of kids. Multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We have got to get some clue, first of all, that homosexuality is contrary to God's design in that this type of union, and I use that term very loosely, a union of two men or a union of two women cannot produce fruit. It cannot fulfill the cultural mandate. Right off the bat, we've got to reckon with God's design and God's mandate for humanity cannot be fulfilled by two men. And it cannot be fulfilled by two women. Two men cannot have a child and two women cannot multiply. And also throughout our Bibles, fruitfulness is the picture of God's design and God's blessing. Think about John chapter 15 where we were just recently. Those who abide in and remain in the vine that is Christ do what? Bear fruit. This is a union that cannot bear fruit. It's all over our Bible. Psalm chapter 1 verse 1. Blessed is the man who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates both day and night. He's like a tree of water that's planted by streams of water which are by, it's like a tree that's planted by streams of water which bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. The picture of blessing in our Bible is fruitfulness. In small groups this week, in response to our message last week, the small groups went over this passage, Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. We've got to get some clue about what homosexuality is in God's eyes by the fact that a child cannot be the product of a homosexual relationship because it's rejecting his design. Look at Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 18. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper, or make, make a helper fit for him. That could, could say suitable for him. I'll make him a helper that is contrary to him, that complements him, that fits him and in some ways completes him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to all the birds and to all the warthogs and to all the platypuses and the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, all these critters come walking by and Adam, there's not found a helper that compliments him. 
has not found a helper that fits him and is suitable for him and in some ways completes him. Name the pet. I love pets, but they don't make a good mate. They don't compliment. Adam saw all of creation, every critter. And still there was nothing found suitable to compliment him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, it, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a, a woman. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, it could say, given the Hebrew and the exclamation that's about to take place, the man declared, because <laughs> he's so fired up. He says, this, at last, he's named every critter. Think about that. He's named every critter. And he says, this, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, Isha. She's awesome. All those critters were pretty neat. But she, now, she's amazing. I declare, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let me tell you right now, marriage by definition is a man and a woman. There's no such thing as homosexual marriage. I can say this because I used to be in the military. It's like military intelligence. It doesn't work. There's no such thing. Marriage is a man and a woman, as defined by God. It's God's design for a woman to correspond to a man, to complete him. It's a man and a woman that become one flesh. Jesus, quoting this passage verbatim in Matthew, added at the end of it, what God has joined together, therefore let no man separate. That's not just a passage discouraging adultery. That's a passage saying, don't tamper with my design. What God has joined together, a man and a woman let no man tamper with. Because it's his design. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to look at this. I want you to see this passage. Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to explain some nature and nurture issues right now. Our hereditary issues. That may be something that's on people's minds right now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. He's talking about a man and a woman. He's talking about Mr. Jones and Mrs. Jones. He's talking about a very real man and a woman. Mr. Jones, love Mrs. Jones as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. So that he might present to the, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, Mr. Jones should love Mrs. Jones as his own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. 
For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And this is going to sound real familiar. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is defined by God. This mystery, this thing we call marriage, is profound. And I'm saying that marriage, it, refers to Christ and the church. The reason marriage is a man and a woman is because God said it is. And because it puts on display the relationship between Christ and the church. That's why it's not to be tampered with. It's God's design. He is the creator, and what he says goes. Now, let me address heredity, our tendencies. Verse 22, look back at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Mrs. Jones, submit to Mr. Jones as to the Lord. But Mr. Jones is a knucklehead. I mean, he's an absolute bonehead, Mrs. Jones declares. How could I possibly do that? There's no qualifier in there. There's no qualifier unless Mr. Jones is a knucklehead. Mrs. Jones submits to Mr. Jones because that's God's design. For a husband, Mr. Jones is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also Mrs. Jones submits in everything to Mr. Jones. Craziness. You read that passage and you go, man, that just sounds really difficult, really hard. How could that possibly be? It's especially hard, too, when you have a woman that may be through nature or nurture, whether she was born with this disposition or whether mom and dad taught her this, a woman who's a strong-willed leader. I'm looking at this passage going, but what about, what if Mrs. Jones runs a business and she's got a team of employees and she's making decisions all day long, wham, bam, seeing a plan and seeing, making decisions and maneuvering uh, Things to just get stuff done, and she's a leader. She's got to come home and submit to Mr. Jones. When Mr. Jones might just be a guy at work that just follows directions. Okay, um, I take this bolt and I torque it this much. Okay? But Mrs. Jones comes home as an act of worship. Submits herself to Mr. Jones' leadership because it's God's design. That's worship. That's not denying who she is. Come on, Mrs. Jones, you know who you are. You're denying who you are. That's not denying who you are. It's called worship. It's saying, I'm placing my will, my tendencies, maybe what I'm even born with naturally hard headedness, and I'm submitting it. To God's design. And I'm going to follow Mr. Jones as an act of worship. I am not denying that some men may naturally be attracted to other men. I know that's possible. Some women may be attracted to other women. 
But worship means that God's design trumps your own inclinations and tendencies. That's what worship is. It's been a few months now, a couple of years probably this, by this point. We as a church went through a series of studies on the Exodus. And we saw God allow his people to go into Egypt and to become slaves. They spent 400 years in Egypt and by the end were in the throes of full-on slavery, like getting whipped and making bricks and without straw and having to work hard all day long. I mean, generations at that point that had never known anything other than slavery. God allowed that to happen so that what we see in Exodus over and over, if you read the whole book, just try and read it in a couple sittings. What you'll see over and over again is I'm doing this so that they may know that I am the Lord. God allowed his people to be in Egypt and then delivered them from Egypt so that they may know that he is the Lord. And I don't know a person that I've ever walked with, that I've ever I've been married to or ever parented or ever shepherded that didn't have their own Egypts. It might be pride. It might be greed. It might be obesity, like a, a gluttony. <laughs> it might be anger. Lots of dudes I know come from this. All kind of backgrounds, all kind of Egypts. That God has delivered many of them, many of us from. So that we may know that he is the Lord. I don't know that any of us fallen people don't have propensities toward something. Lust. Another one, materialism. These Egypts are the soil for worship. That's what I want you to see. Those aren't obstacles to worship. That's the soil where worship is planted and grows. Man, if I didn't struggle with this problem, I could really worship God. No, it's in and through that problem that you worship God. That's what worship is. Man, I acknowledge that some people may have even a genetic disposition toward affection for the same sex. I understand that. Some people have genetic disposition toward drinking lots and lots of alcohol. But the people of God don't have to be enslaved to that. The blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelling the believer is sufficient to liberate you from that Egypt. Man, that's the message for someone struggling with homosexuality. The Romans one person who's made that exchange, misses these God-exposing, God-worshiping opportunities and says, I'm going to go it my way instead of God's way. Homosexuality is sin because it exchanges God's way for the individuals and it just says, I'll be content to live in Egypt. I'm okay with Egypt. So what are the people of God to do? What do we do with this? <clears throat> I'm going to offer three things. And I'm going to use my language very carefully because I want you to get the nuances here. 
First of all, the people of God are to love with the gospel. Unbelievers who practice homosexuality are to be loved with the gospel of the life-giving, sin-covering, finished work of Jesus Christ crucified and risen that covers not only that vice but the other 21 in Romans chapter 1. Amen? We are to love the unbelieving, practicing homosexuality with that message. If the Lord gives you an opportunity to befriend a practicing, someone who's practicing homosexuality, don't run from it. That's what the church Christians often do. I had a, I, I'm going to tell a little story on my kids. It's not a bad story. They all looked up at me like, oh. <laughs> we have some kids in our neighborhood, um, and they're not in this church, so you don't have to try and decipher who I'm talking about. Some kids in our neighborhood that are just rough. And this family is not part of a church. And I was talking with the kids about how the kids might befriend their kids. And one of our kids, I, I can't remember which one it is, but dad, they cuss. And I said, oh, they do? Are they cussers? Well, you be careful because you might catch it. Flee. It's like cooties. Flee from them. That's the way Christians typically handle sin. I mean, unbelievers. It shouldn't surprise us they're cussing. I would be amazed if they weren't. But if we run from them and flee from them, then the salt stays in the shaker. Put it on a shelf. Put it on the mantle. Looks good up there. Not engaging the people that need to hear the good news. It'd be like Jesus meeting a tax collector and saying, oh, you're a tax collector? Oh, cooties. I think I'll go eat at a Pharisee's house. He said, no, I'm going to eat at your crib, man. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to tell you the good news about me. You have a chance to befriend someone who is an unbeliever, who is practicing homosexuality. Man, please Please proceed in that. It's not cooties. I want you to know also that as you love them, as you get to know them, that you are to love them with the truth. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You are to love them with the truth. If you deny the sinfulness of homosexuality as you befriend this person and you think, I'm going to scare them off if I say anything about sin or Jesus or repentance, then you're not loving them at all. Love rejoices in the truth. It might seem kind. It might seem tolerant. But it's not love as our Bibles define Because we love them with the gospel. We love them with the good news that brings hope and life. To love an unbeliever practicing this is to call them to repentance. It's to say what God would say, what Jesus would say if he was at that meal. This is not God's best for you. This is not God honoring. It's contrary to God's design 
It's to call them to repentance and call them to renounce and turn from it and to follow Christ in faith. And I know a lot of you might be sitting here saying, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. It does happen sometimes. Does it happen all the time? No, not any more than it would sitting down with a thief. Did every thief hear the gospel and say, I repent, renounce thievery? No, most of them say, forget you, man. It's easy and fun. I'm going to go buy th- steal something. But some of them might say, man, I'm broken. This good news is what I've been waiting to hear. Like the sheep that's lost that will hear the shepherd's voice. Like the sweet aroma of Christ. Some of them will go, mmm, that smells good. Most of them will go, mmm, that's the aroma of death. No, thanks. But some will say, that smells good. But the church is hypoallergenic. Man, we ought to be the aroma of Christ among the homosexuals. And show them by our lives, by our testimony, and best of all, by the word of God that does not return void, that the blood of Jesus is sufficient for this Egypt. And you know what? That time with them might mean months. It might mean years. Investing in time that you have with them. Sowing truth into their lives. I would encourage you to is connect them with ministries that can help. I read about a ministry this week that's called Exodus International Ministries. On the board of Exodus International Ministries, there's tons of people on the board, and they're all men that have been delivered from this Egypt. One of them is a guy named Dennis Jernigan. If you know your Christian music, you know who Dennis Jernigan is. A famous Christian music writer, delivered from that Egypt. Now has a wife and a row of kids. Some of them are worshiping through having a wife and kids. Some of them are worshiping through singleness. And some people say, oh, they're denying who they really are. No, they're not. They're coming into the fullness of who they really are. There's hope for someone stuck in this position because they're not stuck. I read this passage a minute ago, and now I want to finish it out. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Listen, don't turn there, just listen. It's going to be a familiar passage because it was one that made me swallow hard a minute ago. Do, not, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not be in heaven. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. You hear that? Such were some of you. Man, that word is a sweet word. I love that word. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. That's Exodus. That's deliverance from Egypt. That's the only deliverance. Such were some of you. Man, the hope is Christ. Now, for someone who confesses Christ, who's Practicing homosexuality. And I use that term because that's the term that we just read. Practicing homosexuality. This is a difficult one. 
This is the issue, I'll be really honest with you, I've labored over. Uh, anguish, I think, is the word I used early on because there are people that I know and love that are just going to be wrecked by what, what I'm about to say. 1 Corinthians 5.11 says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat, to eat with such a one. That's hard. Someone who bears the name brother. Someone who confesses Christ as Lord, who lives in this place of this, I'm doing it my way. Paul says, don't even eat with such a one. Someone who confesses Christ yet continues to live in this, this sin, unrepentant, is to be avoided. A very different scenario than the unbeliever. You know, this is crazy tough if it's a family member. I don't know what to do with it if it's a family member. Some of you are going, okay, I see it. What do I do if it's family? Do I not go to my family gatherings? Do I not spend time with my sister or my uncle or my brother? I'm praying for the grace to see this through. I'm praying for the grace to see this through and for wisdom. The thing that I see in our Bibles time and time again is that covenant trumps even blood. Covenant trumps blood. The covenant people are closer together than even blood brothers. And covenant will always trump blood. If it seems unloving and tough, you need to know that God can use it to be the thing that brings repentance. We've seen this in our body a few times. A handful of times in the life of this church, we've had something that's called church discipline. Some of you have never heard of it. You're like, oh, that sounds scary. It is kind of scary. And God's used it to bring repentance to people within this body. He's used it to put his grace and his mercy on display. When someone is, is excluded from the gathering of the people of God, they can feel the sting and the pain of isolation from the loving embrace of the people of God. And God has used that before to bring them to a place of repentance. God can use this to change the heart of someone who's confessing Christ and living in this sin. The third thing is that we should love like forgiven tax collectors. Knowing that our, our, every one of us, our righteousness is in Christ alone. If you're thinking like a Pharisee, there's no way to minister to someone who's stuck in this sin. You won't even want to be around them. Cooties. Tax collector, cooties. But if you're thinking like a fellow tax collector who all find a spot in the 22 vices of Romans chapter 1, then you're off to a great start. If you're realizing that the best you have to offer is filthy rags, and if you marvel that grace should reach so low as for the likes of you, then you're off to a great start to minister rightly, humbly, lovingly to someone who's wrestling with this sin. 
If you're sitting back like tidy, whitewashed Pharisees, it will keep you from engaging people stuck in this Egypt. I want to end with a passage from 1 Peter. I told you this morning that I believe it's not in spite of, or because of these issues that the gospel is hindered, I believe it's because of these issues, through these issues that the gospel is on display. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. That trial may be a best friend or a loved one, family member who's stuck in this sin. It may be you who's wrestling with this sin. You rejoice, though, for a little while as you are grieved by this trial so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is through how the people of God handle these sort of issues that the gospel is put on display. It doesn't get in the way of the gospel. It's the soil for it. It's an opportunity for the gospel to be sown and spread Let me pray. Lord, I pray for this seed that's been sown and pray that it finds hearts that are ready to receive it. Lord, I pray too that as those who've heard this and are troubled, that those will be willing to sit and talk with Bibles open and seek your face and your will and your design and your ways. And that we will seek to submit everything that we are, everything that we think, everything that we prefer, our tendencies, our own inclinations, that we submit all of those to yours. That yours trump ours. Lord, I confess this sermon is hopefully that, because I'd rather not have even talked about this. Lord, I pray that your will and your best has been on display this morning. And I pray that people of God can walk in this. I pray too for those who may hear this message through audio or through a CD that's been passed out online that may be wrestling with homosexuality. Or that this message will give them hope. Thankful for your Deliverance being on display in men like Dennis Jernigan, ministries like the Exodus International Ministry, where family after family after family is a product of your deliverance from Egypt. Lord, I pray that if someone is struggling with this and thinking that they're doomed, that they'll see that the blood of Jesus is sufficient to rescue them from this. Lord, I pray too for the people of God as we handle this, that you'll guard us from handling this like a bunch of Pharisees, keeping things at arm distance, being hypoallergenic with the salt and the shaker, but that we can be salty and bright and loving and gentle and respectful, giving an account for the hope within. Lord, I'm thankful for absolute truth. As difficult as it may be at times, I'm thankful for it. Praying these things in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now. And I, as we take the Lord's Supper, I'd like for us to really be intentional and conscious of something. As we take this meal together, it's an act of worship as we say in many ways that we're placing God's absolute truth above our own.
above anecdotal experience, above what we think ought to be true, about what we prefer, about what we might be prone to. We're putting all those things aside and saying we surrender and submit ourselves to your way above ours. Absolutely. And taking this cup and this bread, we are saying that God is true and we surrender our ways for his. Our will for his. Our tendencies, our Egypt's as soil to put him on display. Let's worship as we dine. Lord, as we drink something that represents the blood of Jesus, I pray that we can be mindful of the price that was paid. We can be aware of the expense. We can consider what it means to follow you, that it costs us everything, including our own desires and inclinations and tendencies and will. And Lord, not if we fail you, but when we fail you, we are thankful for the blood of Jesus that covers us. We're thankful that our righteousness that you see us as is through the blood and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. We celebrate that as we take and eat and drink. I want to pray these next few minutes will be a time of worship as we give, as we sing, and be a sweet aroma of you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. At the allergy clinic this week, and uh, you know, they always have a weird mix of magazines at doctor's offices. And I was sitting there waiting on the doctor and picked up just what was there. It was Entertainment Weekly or something like that, which I wouldn't normally. I want you to, I had to qualify. I was at the allergist because I don't, couldn't, really couldn't care much less. But I saw that Ricky Martin came out. And it was this big fanfare, came out as a homosexual and it might be dated, I don't know. It might be old news. It was new news for me. And I, I saw that, and I saw the fanfare, the celebration. What a hero, what courage. And my heart was broken for Ricky, and my heart was broken that that's really the way the world handles it now. It's sort of a celebration. They've been set free. Man, the people of God, we've got to be equipped knowing that that's a time to grieve. And a time to love people with the gospel. While the world cheers, we know otherwise. We know it's in Egypt. We know that the blood of Jesus is sufficient. So we can encourage folks. We can love them with the good news. I, um, for the longest time, church was a kind of an experience for me. And I mean before Crosspoint. But when I was growing up, it's kind of an experience when Christy and I were first married hoping that I would go to church and get kind of filled up, you know, or I could walk away feeling good, you know. I see church as very different now. I see church as an equipping time. Church is not an event. Church is a people. And we gather corporately. I do what God has called me to do, and that's to equip the saints for the work of service. And the work of service in this case of what we're dealing with today is to be salty and bright in the lives of those that are stuck in this sin. And that salty and bright for an unbeliever means sowing the gospel into their lives. For a professing believer, it means, for I want you to know I love you, but I love God more. And I want the gospel to be on display. And I want you to know that we can't spend time together anymore. But I will be here for you when you're ready to walk away from this Egypt, and I'll show you how to do it. I'll show you what faith looks like.
You're equipped for something this morning. Now, the question is whether you do something with it. Something else you're equipped for, too, and this is the sweetest thing of the morning, I think, is that hopefully not a person walked away from here that doesn't have a better understanding of what it means that our righteousness is apart from us. That's the sweetness for all of us. We walk away from here seeing real level ground, and we see that we could just write a new song. Our righteousness is Christ. We sing it over and over again, because maybe then it would get in our heads. And the little Pharisee that rears its ugly head in us would just be beat down. We'd just murder him. <laughs> Man, that's the good news. That's, you want to you know what hopefully you walk away with? Hopefully you walk away with that equipment this morning.